Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Jacqueline Witt, professor of strategy at the U.S. Army War College and the editor of A Better Peace. Thanks for listening with us today. On this episode, we're going to travel back in time a bit to the mid-1940s and into 1950 with the outbreak of war on the Korean Peninsula. But instead of looking at the failure of Task Force Smith or the operational plans that guided the U.S. military in the initial phases of the war, we're going to talk instead about the concept of strategic readiness. I'm pleased to have as my guest today, Dr. Michael Lynch, who is a senior historian at the Army Heritage and Education Center, or AHEC. He earned his PhD from Temple University and has written extensively on the history of the U.S. Army. He has written a biography of Ned Almond, the commander of 10th Corps in Korea, that will be coming out as a book with the University Press of Kentucky later this year. So, Mike, thanks for joining us today on A Better Peace. Thank you. All right, so let's start with a definition. Um, we hear a lot about readiness these days as a primary uh, concern for the U.S. military and sort of in the broader national security community. Um, but can you help us understand what that actually means? In the context of what we talked about for uh, the Korean War, it's both preparedness at national level in terms of how prepared is the nation to go to war in the Pacific um, from all levels, um, political, economic, uh, military, uh, what sort of resources does it have, uh, how its military is structured, and how that military is postured, how well the economy is going. Readiness, of course, at military level means what do the units have? What um, resources do they have? How are they? How well are they manned? How well are they trained? Uh, how well? When? Where are they stationed around the world? Okay. And when we add the adjective strategic to that term, um, what does that mean in this context? In this context, what the United States was not prepared for a war in Asia, because it was preparing for a war in Europe, and focusing after. Uh, only five years after the end of World War II, with the Soviet Union being the presumptive next enemy, all uh, attention was focused toward Europe. Okay. So in that context, then, why do you think the Korean War is a good uh, case study for us to look at today? It was the war that happened exactly where we did not expect it to uh, at exactly the time we didn't expect it right, to. So this is the wrong war at the wrong time. Exactly. In the, and, in the wrong place. And, and, and we are fundamentally unprepared to do anything, and it went from peace to hot war overnight. Okay. Um, so you talked a little bit about the context of it being the, the post-World War II period, um, tell us a little bit more about what had happened in terms of United States um, preparedness and readiness, the strategic posture of the United States between 1945 and 1950. After the end of World War II, the, the United States had, had built the largest military in its history. The Army alone had over 8 million soldiers. Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, Army was demobilized and, and sent back home and 
the only troops stationed overseas were occupation troops, and they had been stationed in, in various uh, uh, countries in Europe and also Japan and Korea for a period of time. Um, from, the, from the strategic standpoint, the United States did not expect another war on the scale of World War II, and the, the mobilization period for World War I and World War II had been very long, so they did not expect to go to war immediately, as quickly as we had to in Korea. The, the world had also changed a lot, because uh, after the end of the war, there was a slight depression, and then the United States enjoyed the, the growth of, of one of the greatest economies in our history. So uh, at the end of the long years of the Great Depression, followed by the war, then we had a, 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 a period of great economic prosperity, um, which focused away from uh, building uh, tools of war, military items, uh, weapons, those sorts of things. Um, there was also a, a war weariness, because it had affected the population unlike uh, almost any anything else since the Civil War. The idea that people want to get home and get back to Correct. life. I think and right, this, we see this in how veterans of the Second World War especially talk about their service. Right, They did, they did right. their duty, they did what they had to do, and then they wanted to come home right. and get on, with, right. get on with life. So how big is the U.S. Army um, in the period that we're talking about? By 1950, um, it had fallen off dramatically from the 8 million high, and it was down around a million or so, I believe. Okay. Um, none of the units, more importantly, none of the units were at full strength. Um, many units had uh, two of three regiments were full. Um, not all units had had uh, full equipment. Uh, most of the, the um, units had been scaled down to assert to... Uh, remove certain um, right. capabilities so such as tank companies. So it's not just that the Army is smaller. It's smaller in particular ways that Correct. are going to affect it, its, its capabilities. It's smaller in end strength as well as force structure. Okay. So the, the force structure had been, had been stripped away. Yeah, so we've got a changed domestic political context, changed economic context, changed international context, right, with the Cold War. Yes. Uh, and by mm. 1950... Right, the Soviet Union is clearly looming large in uh, American sort of foreign policy. Right. China is looming large now um, at the end of the Chinese Civil War. So, w was Korea on the United States' strategic radar at all? It specifically was not on the United States' strategic radar. And, as a matter of fact, it had been taken off. Um, um, in, if you look at the, the context of the time, it looks Korea looks to be what we would call an economy of force role because Korea alone among the the countries that we occupied after the Second World War was not a um, a captured country or a conquered country. It was liberated. We liberated Korea mm -hmm. from the Japanese. Um, they weren't the, an enemy that needed the, to be the, exactly and they they had they had reinstalled a new government which was freely and fairly elected. And um, uh, according to the, the the circumstances of the time, and and it looked like a win for the United States. This is one of many places that we don't have to be. They now have a a, 
a freely elected government. We transferred sovereignty in 1948, I believe, and and left. We left a small uh, cadre of about 500 of a, a advisory group of troops there because the the government was. Uh, a nascent government it wasn't ready mm -hmm. to fully take over and so we had some advisors but nevertheless it was a sovereign nation again and we were allowing them to do that it looked like one place that we could get out of we still had to occupy japan germany austria trieste and right. so and like you said the the focus geopolitically seems to be on the Soviet Union, on Eastern and, and Central Europe, it, it absolutely is because uh, the Soviet Union has the, the 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 Cold War is very definitely heating up at this point. Um, the uh, the the Soviet Union has started to make alliances, and and now the European countries, Western European countries, have started to align themselves in the Western European Union, which will, will later grow into NATO to 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 combat what became the, the, the Warsaw Pact. And at the same time, in, the, in Asia, our only friend in Asia, the Nationalist Chinese in 1949, then lose the, the uh, Chinese Civil War, pushed out of mainland China. And we, we really don't have other good options in Asia after that. Okay. So this sets up a circumstance where the Army's in-strength force structure strategic positioning around the globe um, is clearly not optimized. Correct. For, that's, Correct. Maybe, that's maybe putting it too mildly, it sounds right. like. Uh, not optimized for fighting in Korea, and yet that's exactly what happens, right? right. The, the North Koreans um, come over the border in June of, of 1950. And so can you tell us what happens, what happens next? Once it is clear that the U.S. does need to do something, now the, US, the United States has different considerations about mobilization for structure. Um, so what happens after it's pretty clear that we're not ready right. for war? Um, and this is another, another reason that Korea is a good uh, case study for going to war with no notice because we had no indication uh, that, that this was going to happen and no indication that we would need to be ready for anything like this. President Truman made the decision to, to deploy troops because the United States had just backed the formation of the United Nations. Uh, the UN had just formed, and this was going to be mm -hmm. the United Nations' first mission. And it's, a t and it's a test of the United Nations. It's a test of the United Nations. And, and President Truman did not feel that the United States could, could stand back and, and, and do nothing it felt like it needed, he felt like that the United States really needed to assist the United Nations. So our foreign policy changed literally overnight, and we started deploying troops. Now, what this meant for the troops is the closest troops to be deployed were in Japan. And there are four understrength divisions in Japan, and most of them scattered out on constabulary duty right. in, the, in the upper yeah, they're, uh, parts they're of the They're basically island. a civil service governing exactly role their occupation exactly army in japan now the eighth army uh, general walton walker had taken command of the eighth army the year before and he had attempted to to begin training on um on uh, the the sort of combat missions that they would need to do they tr trying to bring back their military training he had a good training plan uh they're, they're out of time they just it, it mm -hmm. he wasn't able to get it going 
far enough, well enough, fast enough in order to make any real difference uh, going to Korea. Uh, coincidentally enough, uh, one of the training that was going on when this happened was um, amphibious training. Okay. So at that time, once Truman makes the decision to deploy troops, once the United States sort of starts to get, um, I, I guess it's collective head around what has to happen, what are the next um, sort of stages of, of mobilization that go into actually fighting the Korean War? Well, <clears throat> most people think about Task Force Smith as the 1st Infantry Battalion uh, that was deployed to Korea, and they, they did as well as they could do. Uh, uh, it was a battalion of the 21st uh, Infantry, but they were completely overwhelmed quickly. And uh, we use that as a metaphor for unreadiness, but it was mm -hmm. more than just one infantry battalion that was unready. It was really the entire military infrastructure that was unready that sent them there. But after uh, that battalion then followed uh, the, uh, the rest of the 8th Army in pieces, um, the 8th Army was stationed in Japan. It had no core structure, no core headquarters underneath it, just the four divisions. They uh, deployed in pieces to, um, to Japan, literally moving, or I'm, I'm sorry, moving to Korea. Um, the, the divisions in the south part of Japan moved first because they were closer. Mm -hmm. uh, the, as the other divisions consolidated and moved uh, closer to deployment, they gave up more and more soldiers to deploying divisions to try to fill them out. So the last division that deployed the 7th Infantry Division, by the time it was uh, scheduled to deploy, it was uh, short over 8,000 soldiers. Now each of these uh, when we say that each of these divisions were short, had a, they had a wartime strength and they had a peacetime strength. They were short of their peacetime strength. Oh, wow. What would have the wartime strength been? About 18,000. Okay. And they were well below 12,000. So they so, were below 12. Yes. Can you give maybe some of our listeners are maybe not familiar with what divisional structures sort of can do what would a shortage of that magnitude affect in terms of their capacity and capability under, under the structure of the time each division had three infantry regiments and that th those were the main fighting elements each also had a tank company and um, artillery and engineers each regiment had three battalions of of infantry Every regiment in the Army had inactivated one battalion, and the tank companies in all of the um, divisions had been, had been inactivated. They, okay. were, they were on the books, but they were not there. They were skeletons. So uh, what this did is it reduced their combat power by large fractions. Right. What General MacArthur then did was ask the Korean government, uh, President Syngman Rhee, for assistance, and uh, President Rhee provided Korean soldiers and mostly civilians to the U.S. Army to fill out those positions. Uh, the 7th Infantry Division took probably the largest number of the initial wave, took over 8,000. Mm -hmm. Those became 
Korean augmentees to U.S. Army or Katusas, and we still use right. uh, Katusas in Korea today. But that's that's where they originally came from. Yeah, so it's interesting to think about that those kind of force structure decisions having impact on, like you said, the the generation of, of combat power. And it doesn't necessarily seem like an easy math equation, right, that missing um, one battalion from every regiment is going to cut your combat power by mm-hmm. a third. Like that's... Um, it, it doesn't quite work that, right. that if, way. If the math were that easy, it would almost right. be easy. <laughs> you could almost figure out but what, it's, you, it's, it's what more, you still had. That's right. It's more of a, it's more of a because of the, the loss of, of not just the combat power, but the, the trained soldiers mm-hmm. and the automatic weapons and those sorts of things, artillery, uh, it's more of a, a, it's a logarithmic loss right. rather than a fractional rather loss. Rather than fractional. Um, I assume that along with shortages of people, there's also shortages of equipment, ammunition, supplies, and all the all the stuff it takes yes. to to prosecute a war. Of almost everything, the the uh, for instance, one of the the economies of force that the the army had used was the the tank, which was used in uh, Korea and all the Korean units was the. M24, I believe, the lightest tank that we had at the time. They're the only light tanks left. Uh, most of the rest of the Army had already been fielded with the newer uh, M26s, a heavier tank, or the, M- the M27 uh, was due to come in. Um, the point is they got to uh, Korea and and were completely outgunned and outmatched and outranged by the T-80, and they were they were almost useless. So our, we had almost no firepower, even when we had the small numbers mm-hmm. of tanks that we had there. And in the States, we hadn't had tanks come off the assembly line in several months. Right. So so how does the United States then you fix the problem, right? So they augment the Army with Korean right. uh, personnel. What else does the United States do to, to get itself out of this mess? Well, that's that's uh, really a, uh, a a long unwinding story. The first uh, two divisions that You've got went two in, minutes right. <laughs> <laughs> the, the 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 first two divisions went into what became known as the uh, or the first three divisions went into what became known as the Pusan perimeter. Uh, the last division, the seventh division, having been stripped so far, was then held back uh, to be rebuilt, and it would eventually make the Inchon landing. But we, the United States, requ- or, uh, um, General MacArthur, uh, Far East Command Commander, requested a Marine division. And the 1st Marine Division was ordered to deploy. The Marines were in worse shape than the Army was because the Marines were almost taken out of existence after World War II. 1st Marine Division didn't really exist. MacArthur asked for a, a Marine division, and the Marine, 1st Marine Division was activated. It had one active regiment. The, it was sent immediately. A second regiment was put together with uh, using troops from all over uh, Camp Pendleton and all over the United States. It was sent. The 3rd Regiment uh, pulled troops out of the 2nd Marine Division at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, and the last battalion of that regiment was actually afloat in the Mediterranean Sea. It sailed around the world and joined the 7th Regiment 
as it landed wow. at Incheon. So they are literally cobbling together. They are cobbling this together. And an, a land force. When um, when, the, when the Marines landed at Incheon, they only had two regiments in the 1st Marine Division. The 7th was the 3rd Regiment that came in, and it didn't land until a couple of days later. Right. It didn't link up uh, just outside Seoul. That story went on with other divisions. The 3rd Infantry Division had so few uh, soldiers that it inactivated one of its regiments and deployed with two regiments. The 65th Regiment, which today is a National Guard unit, was a Puerto Rican regiment, a segregated Puerto Rican regiment, and it was deployed as the 3rd Regiment of the 3rd Infantry Division. It was short a battalion. It took a battalion out of the Panama Canal Zone. Another Spanish-speaking mm -hmm. uh, active-duty regiment and or a battalion, and they did not link up until they hit the beach at at uh, at Wonsan in October. So there's all sorts of decisions around the globe about where can people assume risk, where Correct. can you take units from um, that are, I think, interesting ways to to think about this. So as we as we sort of conclude for today, um, what do you think are the ideas or the questions that people looking at this case study might take? I know historians are really loath to ask about lessons learned um, right. and sort of direct one-to-one -one correlation, so I won't ask you to do that. Right. Um, but what are the things that we ought to think about looking at this uh, case study? Well... <clears throat> I think the biggest thing we take away from it is that we learned in the Korean War that we might not have time to plan for a long deployment. We might not have time to build up uh, the large stocks that we did, you know, before Desert Storm or before Operation Iraqi Freedom, even before World War II. Stuff. Right. We we went from peacetime to wartime overnight in Korea. And I think that's the, that's the context in which we need to view this. Mm -hmm. That things could still surprise us. They Something absolutely. could happen that we're not expecting. Right. Um, turns out that telling the future is hard, right? Exactly. Um, and so anything you could do to mitigate the effects, I guess, of that being caught sort of on your, on your back foot yes. um, would, would help. So, Mike, thanks so much for joining us today on The War Room. I've learned a lot, and I think our listeners will have as well. Thanks very much. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.